Mark chapter 5, we're looking at verses 20-43. This passage uh, we read in its completeness last week uh, because it happens to be a story within a story. And so we'll repeat that reading again this week before we begin to look at, um, in particular, the story of Jairus and his dying daughter. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, the English Standard Version translation. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus... Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that you might be gracious to us in gaining out of this episode in Jesus' life that which will feed us by your Spirit and by your Word and enable us to live a life of faith more faithfully. And so be to this generation the salt and light that is so deeply needed. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin this morning reminding ourselves of what Mark tells us about when this story within a story takes place. It happens right after Jesus returns uh, from the boating expedition that went across the Sea of Galilee. During that trip, a great storm threatened to capsize the boat, threatening to drown Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus, who had been asleep, is awakened. He calms the sea, and then he admonishes the disciples for their lack of faith. Then they arrive on the opposite shore, the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And there Jesus rescues a man who's possessed by a legion of demons. And what's notable, as we mentioned last week, in both of these episodes, the calming of the sea, the curing of the demoniac, is the absence of faith. And in that absence of faith, Jesus acts in a sovereign manner over both the natural world and the supernatural world. Now, in this section here, we have this double story, the story within a story. Here we also are going to see, and we saw last week, the sovereign power of Christ. But in addition, these stories highlight the role and activity of faith. The role of faith is very much a part of what these stories are all about. We have a suffering woman and a father who has a suffering child who actually dies. And both the woman and the father... They seek Jesus because faith impels them to seek Jesus. But the paramount lesson, the paramount teaching of this passage really amounts to this. Having looked at the circumstances last week, seeing, as it were, similar lessons out of this week, the paramount lesson is this, that real faith, genuine faith, true faith, is never really exercised, is never fully developed. It never really happens until we find ourselves in situations and conditions that are beyond human help. Or to put it another way, as long as we think we are part of the process of saving ourselves, we have not yet exercised true and saving faith. In other words, real faith, saving faith, real trust, is when we understand that we can't do it ourselves, that we are helpless that our efforts can't solve our problems. Or to put it this way, human-sized efforts are worthless in the face of God-sized problems. We see this again in the story about Jairus and his dying daughter and what is, amounts to be the intervention of Jesus into the situation. In the story, we see that this is a man who is gripped by great fear because his human-sized efforts have failed to solve what he comes to see is a God-sized problem. Yet because of the crisis in his life, the dying of his daughter, he's turned to Jesus, possessing in his fear at least enough faith to believe that Jesus is able to do what only God can do. Now, in the intervention of Jesus here, there are three stages of development in the story. First, we see Jesus implored. Secondly, we see Jesus being interrupted. And then finally, we're going to see Jesus being impeccable. Now, all of this comes together to present the same spiritual truth about faith. The truth about faith emerges 
Real faith in Christ is never really exercised until we find ourselves beyond human help. So, first, we see Jesus being implored. Implored. It's not a common word, you know, but it's in the text. Jesus is being implored. Verse 22, we begin with recognizing who Jairus is. He's a synagogue ruler. Now, the rulers of the synagogues were like elders in Christian churches today, responsible for the worship, responsible for the teaching on the Sabbath. But the fact of the matter is, most of the synagogue rulers in Israel were Pharisees. Now, since the Pharisees were the main enemies that Jesus had to confront and who confronted Jesus, it's an interesting thing that this synagogue ruler comes to Christ. Furthermore, although it's way back in chapter 3, it's only recently that the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem have come down to Galilee, come down to Capernaum, and confronted Jesus and have accused Jesus of actually using the devil's power in order to perform his exorcisms and his healings. And noting that, it is significant that none of the gospel accounts ever record a single Galilean Pharisee stepping up to defend Jesus or Jesus' reputation. And that would include Jairus as well. In addition to this, Edersheim points out that it's very, very unlikely that this 12-year-old daughter of Jairus had become deathly sick in a sudden manner, meaning that she had been seriously ill a few days earlier when Jesus was there in Capernaum teaching and healing. So the question has been raised, why didn't Jairus seek the help of Jesus two days earlier? The obvious answer lies in the presence of these religious leaders from Jerusalem. It is possible that Jairus worried about the power of Jesus because of what the Pharisees had said. Possible, but not likely. Because the reality is that Jairus, as the synagogue ruler of Capernaum, where Jesus performed scores and scores and scores of healings and exorcisms, if Jairus... If it were really true, if the claim were really true that what Jesus did was done by the powers of darkness, then Jairus would have seen the consequences of that in greater spiritual darkness in the lives of all those people who had been healed. But in fact, none of the enemies of Jesus can ever point to that phenomenon occurring. It is a base accusation against Jesus for which there is no evidence ever that it is so. Jairus knows that. So why doesn't Jairus come earlier to Jesus? What's most likely is this. Jairus was fearful, as a Pharisee and a leader of a synagogue, of asking Jesus for help because of the spiritual backlash that he would get from these Jerusalem-based spiritual leaders. In other words, it was the fear of man in some form or other, fearfulness for the sake of his status and reputation, that kept him from coming to Jesus earlier. Now, 
That's not uncommon. Most people who've been in ministry for any length of time have actually come across people who become intellectually convinced that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And at the same time find an unwillingness to surrender to Jesus Christ because of the fear of what other people would think. But now the situation has become desperate. Jairus' daughter is at any moment terminal. She's at the point of death. In fact, the, the Greek there says she is at the eschatos. You know the word eschatos, eschatology, the last days, the last things. She is at the last. It could be translated, she is at her last breath. At any moment, she is about to die, and Jairus has come. The situation is desperate. He now sees it's beyond human help, and that has motivated him to come to Jesus. So first we notice his posture, verse 22. He falls at Jesus' feet. He's no longer acting as a proud Pharisee synagogue ruler. He's a broken father. And then we see his plea in verse 23. He's earnestly imploring Jesus. Now, stop and pause and think about those words. Earnestly imploring. He's begging Jesus. He is pleading with Jesus. He's deeply fearful that his daughter is going to die. Whatever kept him away from Jesus before has now been swept away. He is now desperate. And yet, there's also the conviction in his desperation that Jesus can do what needs to be done because he says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, verse 24 tells us, just very simply, Mark says, Jesus went with him. No hesitation, only complete willingness on the part of Jesus. It illustrates that Jesus does not hold this man's former attitude against him. Jesus goes with his father, showing complete grace, complete forgiveness, toward a spiritual leader who had not stood up for him earlier. In thinking about this, it caused me to, to consider how people will often hesitate coming to Jesus because they believe that, well, I let Jesus down before. I wasn't faithful to Jesus then. Why would Jesus want to receive me now? The fact that Jesus goes with this man is by its actions the message of grace and forgiveness. Our sins against God, our sins against his son are heinous sins. Yet when anyone turns to Jesus, no matter how sinful, no matter how blasphemous those sins may have been, no matter what our lives may have been like, no matter. God will have mercy. God will forgive. God will save. Jesus said, John 6, 40, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never 
cast out. Now the second part of this story, as the story moves forward, we see that Jesus is interrupted. This interruption of Jesus, from the standpoint of the literary nature of what Mark is doing, is in many ways the most significant aspect of this double story. So I want to think about what this means. Now, of course, the interruption comes from this suffering woman with this incurable flow of blood, all the physical and social misery that that came about from being ceremonial and clean, the inability to participate in Jewish worship and ceremonial worship for uh, you know a dozen years. The interruption, though, gives us insight into the ways of Jesus. First, you and I know how the story ends. But for a moment, place yourselves within the perspective of the father of the dying daughter. See it from his perspective. Think about it from his perspective. Feel it from his perspective. Judge the situation just like the father would have judged the situation. Just like you or I would have judged the situation if we had a daughter who was at the point of death. And from that perspective, Jesus stopping would have precipitated in you or I a sudden sense of panic, a sudden sense of anxiety. Time is crucial. It would have bothered us that Jesus stopped at all because we would have thought this is a moment that is a code red. The sirens are wailing here, Jesus. This is totally a 9-11 emergency call. We have got to get to the house. My daughter is at the point of death. In the mind of the father, the context and situation and the emergency did not allow a 15-minute stop. So, we watch and we listen in dismay from the father's perspective. We find out that this woman has been 12 years with this problem. She's not about to die in the next hour. Jesus, why can't you just simply tell her, come along with us, or I'll make an appointment with you later? Why, why does she have to tell her story right then? Telling the story is not a crisis situation. It's not an emergency. There's a real emergency that has to be addressed. So we wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing? His compassion, now listen carefully. We're looking at this from the Father's perspective. His compassion, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' mercy to this woman at that moment is nothing but absolute cruelty to the father of a dying daughter. Do you see that from the standpoint of the father with a dying daughter? Do you see that he would feel that there's something not right about what's happening here? Do you see that he might be judging this as a miscalculation of priorities on the part of Christ? 
you see in how it would it would be painful to him to actually stop and to have to listen to this woman's story as marvelous as it is for her what's great for her is not great for him at least that would seem to be the truth in the moment from his perspective but it seems to be confirmed in verse 35. The father hears the worst possible news. Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, here is what this story is showing us, the story within a story where Jesus is interrupted. Mark wants us to see by what we're reading. It's not Jesus who is interrupted. It is Jairus. Jairus has been interrupted in his efforts to save his daughter. His efforts to get Jesus there in time. He thinks that if he can just get Jesus there in time, his daughter will not die. He thinks he can do this thing. He thinks he can get Jesus there. He thinks he's actually getting this job done, getting Jesus there, when it's all interrupted. And now he hears his daughter is dead. And he has failed. His worst fear has come to pass. Now, you and I know the end of the story. You and I know that God does not bless one believer at the true expense of another. God doesn't give a blessing to Christian A, and that blessing means an unblessing for Christian B. Yet, because we do not see things from the standpoint of eternity or from God's point of view, because we don't see the whole story all the way to the end in the moment, it often does feel like God blessing others leaves us unblessed. You and I feel this most acutely as we have recently. When a good Christian friend or a close Christian relative dies, the day of death is God's greatest blessing on the believer who dies in Jesus. We know that's true. But it feels like such a day of unblessing for us. It feels like God has taken something away from us even as He's blessing someone else. But what has really happened, what has really happened has been the interruption of our plans, our agenda for how we have wanted our own lives to play out. 
we have wanted God to handle our lives according to our own desires. We have wanted our journey as a Christian to follow the map that we ourselves have drawn. It's never God's plans, but our plans that get interrupted. And so it was with Jairus, not Jesus, who was interrupted. But it is when God interrupts our plans that real faith begins to grow. Our fears over our interrupted plan must always give way to real faith and to real trust in Christ. And that leads us then to see the third part of this, the flow of the story, and that is Jesus being impeccable. Now, the word impeccable has a theological meaning that's not very common. The dictionary calls it a rare meaning. The word impeccable there means to be without sin. And in the theological sense, Jesus was fully and completely without sin. But in the more common usage, the word impeccable means flawless in performance. And what we see here with respect to what Jesus is doing depicts the flawlessness of his performance in developing true and genuine faith in the life of Jairus. And that is what he's doing. Jesus, responding to Jairus' plea for the dying daughter, including that stopping in time to save the woman who's got the flow of blood, in all that Jesus is doing, he is impeccable. The flawless performance of Christ to develop faith. Now, in verse 35, the messengers come from the synagogue ruler's house. They have this very sad news. Your daughter has died. And how does Jesus respond? He says, do not fear, only believe. But in order for Jairus to believe... In order for Jairus to believe in the only manner of belief that has any value before God. In order for Jairus to believe in the only manner that ultimately connects a human being with the saving power of Christ. The daughter has to die. Jairus had to fail in his efforts to save his own daughter by his efforts. Because Jairus had to see before him a God-sized problem. <laughs> a daughter who has died, he had to see this happen before he could realize fully the worthlessness of his human-sized efforts. In other words, real faith and real trust only develop when we fully understand we can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it because we are, in fact, helpless. So there, there is this one thing that Jesus was doing. He is bringing Jairus to true faith. So all that happens now at Jairus' house, is directed to that one end. So Jesus dismisses all the professional wailers 
the professional mourners who's ma- who are making all of this commotion. He puts them outside of the house. And we have to note that when Jesus says the child is not dead but sleeping, all of these people laugh at Jesus because they know that the child is truly dead. And Mark lets, it see, lets us see that Jesus is speaking cryptically and metaphorically here because the child is truly dead. Everyone knows this child is truly dead. Everyone knows this child is beyond human help, beyond human recovery, and that is the essential fact of the story. Then Jesus brings only his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother and no one else into the child's room. He does so that they, the mom and the dad, Jairus himself, in whom he is developing true faith, in order that they could see we have a God-sized problem, a child who's truly dead, a child beyond human help. In verse 41, Jesus acts. It's, it's noteworthy that his action here is so very personal. The father had said, come and lay hands upon my child and she will be made well. Jesus doesn't lay hands upon her. Rather, we read here that he takes her by the hand and he speaks to her and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. As Jesus could speak to the wind and the sea and they obey him, as Jesus could speak and a legion of demons would have to depart because he told them so, so he could speak and death itself had to depart. The girl arises, begins to walk. Her parents are overcome with amazement. The flawless, impeccable work of Christ. Jesus did not arrive too late. But Jesus refused to come too early. He came exactly at the time needed for Jairus to see that there was a God-sized problem that all human effort would fail to ever rectify so that Jairus would see that the only way for this problem to be solved was to trust Christ and entrusting Christ to have a fully developed faith in God. Now, what does that teach us? What does it show us? Our stories as Christians are very similar. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we could not save ourselves. There wasn't any human effort that was going to make us right with God. The sin that condemned us, the sin that continues to compromise us, has always been a God-sized problem. Nothing in our hands that we could ever bring can ever save our guilty souls. The only solution to our great God-sized problem was to trust in Christ. 
And real trust in Jesus doesn't fully grow, doesn't fully form until we are actually driven by the circumstances of life to see we can't do it for ourselves. We are helpless. Our efforts cannot solve the problem of our guilt before God. Jesus had to die to bear our sin. Jesus had to atone for our sin. Jesus had to wipe away our guilt. Jesus and Jesus alone to make us right with God. But even now, our Christian lives, it's no different. You and I will continue to face God-sized problems that our human-sized efforts will never solve. You and I will find our plans interrupted. We may often feel unblessed as we see others getting blessed. But it's when we go through these situations when we more deeply trust Jesus, we will find His grace, His goodness to be impeccable, to be flawless in every way. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us to, to see in this story so much of ourselves Help us to think about how many times it's really been our plans interrupted, our plans unsuccessful, our efforts not getting the job done that has brought us the frustrations and the worry and the strife in our lives. Rather than recognizing that in all of these things, the proper response is to trust you, a sovereign Father with a sovereign Son and a sovereign Spirit, always working for our good at all times. And so we would pray even this morning that we might have the faith to trust you. That when you say to us in your Scriptures, if you are for us, who can be against us? that we would believe and trust and rest in you. Help us then, Lord, once again, as we need to every day, to surrender our plans to you. To repent of trying to accomplish this journey on our own. And to be willing to say, not our will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.